For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning, and uh, I'm looking at the uh, Gnosim catalog this week for the bios, uh, which is, uh, again, www.gnosim, G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M, uh, the Stefanski uh, auctioning house. And they're putting out one of these fancy schmancy um, auctions this week of excre- extremely rare um, stuff, and one of them caught my eye. In fact, I thought I actually did the Radak before, but it turns out I didn't. Okay, um, the Radak is a big partial, one of the great uh, medieval commentators, and I don't think I can do it all at once, but I can do a part. So let's talk about today about Radavid Kimchi, because in the uh, and and I'm gonna deal with some. Uh, very boring topics, hopefully in an interesting way. I myself like Dick but I know a lot of people, you know, all of a sudden glaze over their eyes. They are selling here uh, for 50K, 70K. Woo, boy. They're uh, selling here safe for Asherashim Leradach. Now, um, and by the way, it's what you call super uh, rare. It's a before the fifth, It's published before 1500, so it's called Incanabula. Um, this is quite, I don't know where they got it. This is quite a remarkable work. Um, so what are we talking about over here? Uh, as I said, I'm going to sort of confine myself. I don't know exactly. I usually don't keep to my schedule, but, uh, about, uh, one of the uh, classic people you heard of, but you don't know anything about. And that's certainly the Radak Rabbi David Kimchi, who lived in, um, the late 1100s and the early 1200s. I think 1160, 1235, something like that. And uh, that means that he's a contemporary of Maimonides. Okay, think about that. In other words, he was about 45 when the Ramam died. So they live at the same time. But our hero, the Radak, Rabdavi Kimchi, is uh, in Provence. However, it's not so simple. Usually, by the way, many people say, oh, the Radak's a Sephardi. It's not exactly correct. Um, but it sort of is. So I'll get down to what I mean. Here we're talking about the Middle Ages, which we talked about many times. And uh, used to be that you had the Haskalah, excuse me, the Haskalah in Spain, which I spoke about many times. Again, the Maskilim at that time were from. I used the word Haskalah, meaning not just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. They didn't challenge Gamar, 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 but they said there's other stuff out there in addition to Gamar, Gamar. That does not make them unfrom. It may perhaps, perhaps make them un-yeshivish. Um, and we're dealing with Roshonim over here. Or let's put it this way. These guys get into the art school Roshonim book. Now, we've talked about this. So one of the areas in which the Jews in Spain, the scholars in Spain, uh, developed an interest and wrote about, in addition to Gemara, 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 there were yeshivas, and there were people learning, and even some of these guys learned, uh, you know, uh, had Siddharm and Shas and all that. They did. They did. But that doesn't mean that comprehends the totality of all you are. It's not like today that a person is the yeshiva and is proud of the fact that they're undertaken or something like that. That's not how they looked at it in those days. And if you're interested in other areas of Torah or of Jewish uh, culture uh, in, in a religious way, um, so Spain is a place where that happened in the Muslim times. Spain is a place where you had, as I say before, um, what do you call it? Uh, people into Dikdok, into Tanakh, into 
um, poetry, into the Hebrew language, into philosophy, and writing science books. Um, they're, the, they're the ones. Now, how do you classify these people? Is somebody who lived the same time as the Rambam or Rashi or Rishon, if he wrote a science book, usually in the yeshiv, we're so yeshivized that you think of Rishon and somebody's into Gemara, which I understand. So the question is, what do you do with the, these types? Now, listen closely. In Spain, it worked out. In the different Kehillas, you had your Rabbonim, your Dayonim, your poets, your philosophers, your dictator guys. They had such people, you understand? And one didn't stare the other, okay? One did not stare the other. Uh, and they lived, sort of, so to speak, side by side. Um, but, which is different, like, for example, in Eastern Europe later on in the 19th century, for example. And I talked about the Vilna on the other day and that sort of thing, which was like an attempt to sort of a little bit revive the um, Spanish uh, Haskala, known as the Frum one. Um, question is if that if that's possible or not. Now, uh, I'm not sure you understand what I'm saying because everything's super yeshivish today because that's the way the modern history unfolded. The other things fell apart, and the yeshivish stuff, mamish, uh, you know, uh, uh, took off as the defining uh, characteristic, the defining institution of from culture bechlal, which is an interesting um, development. I'm actually going to be talking about that in Rochester in, in, in uh, February. Now, in Spain, as I said before, you had all these different types. Outside, outside of Spain, not really. So, if we're talking about the 9, 10, 1100s in Spain, what's out there elsewhere? Well, let's look at the north in Ashkenaz. It's just Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. That's the time of Rashi and Tosos. Okay? Uh, you might find a weirdo here and there, like the Rashbam, into Chumash. But that would be considered a weirdo type activity. Even the Rashbam, as you know, was mainly uh, Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. He's one of the Roshonim on the Shas. Okay. Then, however, in the middle of the 1100s came the big Holocaust, or the Almohads, the like Taliban types, the ISIS types, um, who took over the Islamic Spain, and they prohibited Judaism, as I think you know by now. And... As a result, it was a catastrophe for the Jews, and who had to react in different ways. One of the things people did if they wanted to stay Jewish was run away from Spain and go somewhere else. One of the places they ran away to was in southern France or Provence, which is the area, as you'd say, of southern France and the general um, Mediterranean area and 100 miles north of that. Now, southern France, that's a wrong word I'm using. I'm using so you, the reader, the listener, will understand what I'm saying. In the time I'm talking about, which is in the 1100s and in the 1200s, there was no such thing as southern France. France was a kingdom in the north of what we call today Spain. And the area that I'm talking about, Provence and Languedoc, was like its own area that ruled itself. They didn't even exactly speak French. They spoke Occitania. They had their own separate culture. This is an area that was more Latin and connected to the Roman Empire. It had been part of the Roman Empire long before Julius Caesar came along. And it had its own cultural norms and it had its own Jewish-type communities. Jews and Torah scholarship had been there for a long, long time. This is called Provencal. So don't confuse it. It's not Ashkenaz and it's also not Sephard. It wasn't big, 
but it had some heavy hitters. So here's one of these situations like in the Middle Ages where you had these very small Jewish communities, but if people have education, even a small Jewish community can have some impressive people there. The peak period of this, I would imagine, would be the 1100s. The 1100s when he had the rivet running around, so he was like a world-class Rishon, as we all know. And in the 1200s, you had people, if they're not from the A-plus rank of the Rishonim, they're certainly from the A-minus, which is pretty good. I'd like to be an A-minus Rishon. Um, that's kind of that's that's more or less the way things unfolded. So one of the things that developed is a, the, the interesting part about the Jews in Provence was their attitude towards Haskalah, meaning other than Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. Now, many of the people, most of the people I'm talking about, were very learned. They weren't to Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. And they had yeshivas derived, it obviously comes to mind, to Balamor, people like that, no question about it. No question about it. But what about things in addition to Gemara? Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. Again, they had Kahillas, very small. They had Beisdins. They had their Eros, their Mikvahs, their Gitten, Kedushin, their Choshen, Mishpat, and the whole nine yards. They did do that. They did. And they had a share, some of them were like major world-class Talmud HaChemim. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing they're interested in. Now, when the Jews run away from, when some of the Jews run away from Spain, they bring with them the knowledge of Arabic and of Hebrew. Because they were from Jews, they were masculine in Spain, the language was Arabic, the Baskilim are, whenever you hear the word Haskalah, it means it's in Ivrit. So their whole shot was to translate and, 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 and render this, the, the, the stuff in, in Arabic, in the Hebrew, and Hebrew in the Arabic. In other words, to go to write art scrolls, so to speak. Question is, where is there an audience? Where is the audience? Okay. Can't have an art scroll flourish in, uh, you know, in Satmar, because they're not into English. You see, it's got to be the right audience. You know, they want to win English. Okay. So, I think you know, we've spoken in the past, that uh, some people like Huda and Tibun and so forth came to, um, well, let me put it this way. Two families are very famous moving from Spain to Provence, hooking up with Richie Rich's Talmud HaChachamim in Provence, who then said, Givaldic, you guys are masculine from, of course. You understand Arabic as well as Hebrew. We understand that you Jews in Spain have produced, over the last 100, 200 years, some major works of Jewish scholarship, whether in Gemara or other things as well. And we want you to translate it for us, because we can't read Arabic. We live in, in Provence, which is a part of Christian Europe. And Arabic wasn't something you knew. And so these guys made a living by working for these Richie Riches and translating works of the Arabic, Judeo-Arabic Jewish culture and thereby making it available to the Richie Riches and therefore making it available to the whole Klal Yisrael. Because once you write in Hebrew, anybody who can read Hebrew, which is any competent rabbinic scholar around the world, can read it. This, for example, is how the Ibn Tibbins came and translated the works of medieval Jewish philosophy. They're the ones who took Sadigons and Munis Vadeos, which was written in Baghdad in Arabic, um, 
the Chobos Halavavos, which again was written in Arabic, the Kuzari, which again was written in Arabic, and Marnavucha, most controversially, which again was written in Arabic, and they translate into Hebrew. Okay? Now, you can be uh, one of these picky, uh, they didn't translate this is exactly right, not right. I'm leaving that for the professors in the Israeli universities right now. That's not in their gale. Klal Yisrael used these translations from the 11, 1200s on until t- till today, basically. These are quote-unquote the from translations. And that's the Ibn Tibbet families associated with translating the philosophy books, okay? But there was another family named Kimchi that they ran away from Spain. And once again, they hooked up with the Richie Riches. And what the Richie Riches, in, in, and when I say the Richie Riches, I mean people like Rabbi Yonason, Akonim, Milunio, Rishonim, big rabbis who wrote Mepharshim on, on Shas, okay, biggies. Uh, they said that what we want you to do is um, translate the dictic books, okay? So here we have an interesting phenomenon that in Spain, starting in the 900s, 1000s and early 1100s, one of the things that the Jews, that the scholars, the Jews in Spain, a certain type, was to understand Ivrit, the Hebrew language, well. Because nobody did. Most of the listeners to this podcast, I'm sure 99%, probably don't know Hebrew. When I say Hebrew, you know Ivrit. You can speak, you might be able to carry conversation in Hebrew. I'm talking about to understand Lashon Kodesh in Eifin Yesodi, um, with the diktuk, all the rest of it. Because most people consider diktuk boring. It really isn't, but it depends who you are. I mean, you know, I've been around a long time. It depends who you are. So, in in Spain, what happened was that the Jews lived in an Arabic-type culture. They knew that the Muslims, the Arabs, always running around saying that the Arabic language is Russian Kodesh, because that's the language of the Quran. And the Arab language is and beautiful. And look how gewaldic it is. If I remember correctly, in the Kuzri, he has the Muslim guy say to the king, just look at the Quran. It's got to be divine because it's written so beautifully. And the king, of course, says, I can't read Arabic. It don't mean nothing to me. So that whole Messias was part of the Arabic Renaissance in the Middle Ages. I don't fault them for being into their language. So the Jews, let's put it this way, some Jews felt ashamed of this because we don't know the Hebrew language. Uh, That's a crying shame. And uh, they undertook to try to do something about it. Now, in the Tanakh and in the Chazal, you don't find any dicta, correct? They never give you any rules of dicta. For whatever reason, we Jews have always had a very unsystematic culture. But when they come in Spain in the Middle Ages, they all of a sudden, because of the challenge of the copying the Arabs and the and the Arabic language and the Islam, so the Jews want to compete with them, which is nothing wrong. So they say we have to introduce a systematic approach, scientific, if you will, understanding the Hebrew language. Saad Yigon started it, but you know it took a while for it to roll. And, you know, compare all your words, see what are the forms of the grammar. So the stuff that you and I are familiar with today, whether we understand it or not, kal, nifel, pil, pul, hifel, vispile, avar, hovel, seed, sivoy, dogish, chazak, dogish, kal, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, they had to work backwards. Notice, you look in the Chumash, you look in the Tanakh, perhaps you look in the Mishnah also, there's not a lot to work with. You have the Tanakh and the Mishnah, basically, it's after possibly, if you want to get down to it. Uh, and the Tanakh is the only one that had the Nakudos, you know. So, um, and you work backwards. Looking, what we have over here, can we extrapolate rules? 
Look at this. Every time there's a Tanua Katana, first of all, you see letters are, you can write in the different Tanuas, Tanuas Katanas, Tanuas Gadolas, for example, dealing with this at a very basic level. And look, every time you see a Tanua Katana, afterwards comes a dot in the next letter. Must be there's a rule that way. Every time you see a Tanua Gadola, it's the opposite. Must be a rule that way. You see what I'm saying? They work backwards. They didn't work from the bottom up. They work from the top down. Because they had no choice. That's what you got to do. And these people, the great grammarians, now, when you work that way, you're trying to extrapolate rules from the vast corpus of the Tanakh and that sort of thing, you're going to find uh, contradictions in Tanakh, because that's just the way it is. Sometimes the Pesukim follow this, and sometimes they don't. For example, just comes to mind. We have a business that it seems almost all the time, when you ever have, we call a Shva Markov, you know, like a Katapatach, Ohave, you know, with a Ah, with two dots next to it, you know, that sort of thing. So it's always under the letters al uh, So it sounds like there's a theory behind that, which is that these letters can't be pronounced with a regular U, for whatever reason. I won't go into that now. Therefore, in order to aid the pronunciation, the Hebrew language, Lashon Kodesh, came up with a Chata which is an Ah, but it's not really an Ah. It's really a Shva. I hope I didn't bore you with that. Now, the point is... Um... That's okay with me, but that means the only time you should find one of these ahs with the two dots next to it should be under Alve Chesayin, which is what you find 99% of the time. However, in last week's parsha, it's the to Abanam Bekirba, and under the Tzadi was a Chatapata, according to many girses, or Sedei Migrash Arihim Lo Yimacher. And, you know, under the word Sedei, if you look in the in the Chumash, they'll have a, a Chatapata. Now, there are those who disagree and say, that's not the right Gerasen. Depends which Chumash you have. But the regular ones have that. Now, uh, what happened to your rule? So then you have to say, like, well, it must be an exception. Or else, if you're real, real, real smart, you'll try to work backwards and figure that it only works for Alvei Chesayin, except when you have this and that and the other, you know. And, and and by the way, there are books that go into all this. All I'm trying to say is, without getting into too many details, that the study of the Diktuk requires a great deal of concentrated work and then sort of like in working in the spy business, intelligence business, you have to analyze and draw uh, rules out of uh, out of the data, sparse as the data is. Now, as I say before, this really happened in Spain in the 9-10-hundreds. Uh, you have Dunash ben Labad and what's the other guy, and uh, Menachem ben Sruk. You have that big fight. And then you have... Afterwards, some of the big guys who are considered the, the fathers of Diktuk, but they wrote their Diktuk books in, in Arabic, in that for Judeo Arabic. So that's funny. The guys who put the heavy duty analysis into the Lushan Kodesh wrote it not in Lushan Kodesh. Now, you haven't even heard of these people, most likely. It's Yehuda ben Chayuj and Yonah ibn Janach. And Shmuel Nugget to some degree. So I'm talking about an entire department of Jewish culture. If you want to be expansive, it's Torah culture, because you're trying to understand what the Torah means. Uh, but it's not Yeshivish. Because Yeshivish is Gamar Gamar Gamar. So these guys are from, but and their and their their motives are good, but they're not writing Gamar Gamar Gamar. Now, what happened was that um, the first, I'll say it again, 
let's talk about Team A and Team B. Team A were the fights in the 900s, and Team B were the fights, let's say, in the 1000s. Team A was uh, Menachem ben Sruk and, and Dunashib ben Lebrat, which I don't want to... I, I, I mentioned it before, we're talking about Chazdag or something. That's from the golden age of Jews in Spain. Suffice it to say that, you know, uh, they had fights over meaning of Hebrew words and letters and things like that. Menachem ben Sruk, uh, I'm going to dumb this down. Menachem ben Sruk wrote the Machberes, which was in Hebrew, and uh, is it, like a dictionary, okay? Um, I'm just opening it at random. Chorosh. Ches Reishin. He is a pasuk from Eov, and Yishubar. So he gives you the three places you find in the in the Tanakh the word Cheres, and you kind of figure it out that way. And then you have Cheres, Mischalk The word Cheres can have six different uh, meanings. You know, in other words, it was very basic. Rashi has this book. That's why Rashi uses it. He was criticized by Dunish ben Lebrat, who succeeded in getting him fired. And that started a whole hell broke loose. And in the 900s and the 1000s and the 1100s, um, Team A put out their stuff. Team B put out something against Team A. Put Team A then responded, the next generation attacking the criticism of Team B, and then vice versa, and then vice versa. And it went back and forth and forth and back. You understand what I'm saying? And since it's all written in the Hebrew language, even a non-Sephardi could, could participate, like Rabbeinu Tam, of all things. Isn't that funny? Okay? It's a, 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 a Rabbeinu Tam. So in other words, Rabbeinu Tam wrote Hachroz Rabbeinu Tam on Shubat's Dunesh, defending Menachem ben Sarut. Okay, like I said, I don't want to get bore you too, with, too, with too many of these details. Uh, and this is all classic, old Jewish history. When I was a kid... You know, if you wanted to learn Jewish history in the old-fashioned kind of way, um, you know, uh, what they call antiquarianism, first you learned all the, the classic Jewish grammarians and all the rest. There's nothing wrong with it, you know. It's like the golden age Jews in Spain. Now, then came what I broadly call Team B, which is Yehudah Mikhayuj and and Yehudah and, uh, and uh, one or two other people, including Shmuel Nagin. And they wrote most of their good stuff in, in Arabic. So the Jews in Provence couldn't access this. And what these guys wrote was better than the team, the first team, than Menachem and, and, and Dunash. Because that's the way a science goes. You know, you build on what the others said. And so, um, nobody knew what they meant if you didn't read Arabic. Which is kind of funny, because these are the best books in have writ in terms of the technicalities. These are the guys who went into the Shwanah, the Shwanachs, the Tenuos, all the nitty-gritty business of, of Hebrew, the different, uh, you know, uh, vowels and all that stuff. I actually have now, because uh, I'm the only nut that would do this. I was in Israel a couple years ago, but Ibn Chayuj's thing now finally translated now into Hebrew. So the Kimchi family, the father of our hero, Yosef Kimchi, our hero is David Kimchi, Radak. His father is Yosef Kimchi. He made a living translating these, um, or synthesizing, I should say, the writings of the Jewish grammarians in Spain, written in Arabic, into Ivrit for the richy riches that were Maskilim, Gdolim, who were in Provence. That's funny, right? It's just interesting. 
so in other words, Yosef Kimchi is a contemporary of the Rabbeinu Tom. But Rabbeinu Tom lives in northern France, and Yosef Kimchi is in Provence, and Yosef Kimchi would never dream of arguing on a Rabbeinu Tom and Gemara, right? Uh, of course not. But when Rabbeinu Tom stuck his feet into the waters of the controversies of Dunash versus Menachem, Yosef Kimchi wrote a, a whole Sefer Agolui, if you're interested in this, attacking Rabbeinu Tom in diktuk matters. Which, by the way, Rabbeinu Tom had a Talmud, Binyamin of Canterbury, believe it or not, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, who wrote a book defending Rabbeinu, how can you criticize my Rebbe, and blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's ridiculous, because Rabbeinu Tom's specialty was in Shas, not in the diktuk business. He was, you know, uh, just dabbling in it. And Kimchi was in it full time. So this is the atmosphere in Provence in the 1100s, if you're into this sort of thing. Now, everybody was from, everybody was Shomer Shabbos, and everybody believed in Torah Shabbat, Torah That's Zelo Boba Cheshbon. Question is, what is it that turns you on? Even today, you know, we try to make it that all the kids should learn Gemara, all the rest of it. But you know, as well as I know, not every kid's interested in Gemara. What are you going to do? Shoot them? Not every kid's interested in Gemara. And nobody has an alternative. Like, you know, maybe now they're making these different yeshivas with alternatives, but then the others make you feel bad and so on and so forth. Maybe a kid would do better with Tanakh and uh, Kitsar Shulchanar. I don't know. You, you, you see, it's, it's that kind of thing. It was into this world that our hero was born in the in 1160s. That's at the old age of Rabbeinu Tal. His father is supposed to have died when he was young, but nevertheless, he's a chip off the old block. So he's a Provencal Jew with a Spanish background. In other words, like my father came from Lithuania, so his father came from Spain, but he grew up in Provence, and he lived all of his life in Provence. So is the Redaka Sfardi? See what I mean? Yeah, no. I mean, he, he almost never was in Spain, but he lived near Spain, and his old li- his old age, he went there for a certain reason. But most of his life, he's living in Narbonne and Montpellier and those kind of places in southern France, which means that he's living in Provence smack in the middle of the Maimonidean controversies. If he's born in 1160, so the Rambam died when he's 45, uh, the Rambam's books, like the Mornavuchim and the Pirish Mishnahis and that kind of stuff, uh, hit Provence around 1200, approximately, 1195, 1200. So in other words, our hero was 35, 40 years old. You're already with a foreign person. Now, listen closely. Our hero, David Kimchi, was Beteva a mechanic, uh, a good one, but a mechanic. Now, this is very interesting. We have two types, A and B. You got what you call a mechadish, and then you call somebody a, a mechanic. The mechadish is somebody who thinks of somebody new chadushim and new ways of doing stuff, whether it's in Shas, whether it's in Tanakh, whether it's anything else. They're like the ones who think out of the box and come up with new ways of looking at things. And some are niskabal and some are not. The mechanic job is to spread that among others. It's a, it's a different skill. You see what I'm saying? So think, for example, of 99% of Magidi Shir today. Their job is a mechanic. They're not telling you their Kedushim, so to speak. They want you to know what Rav Chaim said, Rav Shem said, you know, what the Rajma said. And Depending how good they are, that's how good they put it over. As you know, there are better rabbis and less well rabbis. Some can explain the tosis, and it's like it's like a piece of cake. Here, I'll give you a good example. Now you have the world of the dafyomis. Uh, 
Some of these Dafyomi guys online are more successful and have thousands of followers. Some of the other guys in Dafyomi are less. Meaning, there's a marketplace of ideas. Some guys, if you think about it, a Magad Shir Dafyomi is a Machanich of a certain type. His job is to make this Gemara and the Rashi and perhaps the Tosas, whatever they do, uh, you know, available to you. So if that guy does a raid bite or something like that, what he's doing is he's he's a mechanech. He's taking what the other said, but explaining to you because you yourself probably wouldn't have the time and maybe wouldn't have the ability to crack it on your own. It could be a difficult text. It's not so simple. When you hear somebody give it over, different story. The Gansa art scroll, in fact, everything nowadays, the Gansa Masifta, and all that sort of thing, Steinsaus, it's all about being mechanech. No, they're taking the stuff from the Freer Dika and trying to put it over to you in a nice way that you can understand it. Consider cooks. The, materi- the, the, the ingredients are there. question is how you cook it, right? You don't want to cook in a way that's not digestible. You don't cook in a way that, that doesn't work. You want to cook in a way that does work. There's nothing wrong with what I said, and there's nothing wrong in there. It, it, it's a, actually a glorious idea. But that's not who the Mechadesh is. You understand? That's why the Mechadshim are few, the Mechadshim are many, but the Mechadshim themselves fall into two broad categories, winners and losers, as you and I know. You know, there's plenty of loser Mechadshim out there who hold themselves to be winners, but they ain't. You know, that's, uh, unfortunately, you have a kid <laughs> has to go through a Rebbe like that. That's, that's how it goes. Um, this is the real world, as far as I can see it. Now, in that context, what is the job of the successful Mechanech? To take the stuff from the Freer Dika, from the predecessors, and put it over to the next generation. That's who the Radak was. He was a big scholar, big Talmud and all the rest of it. He concentrated on things like Tanakh and Diktuk. That's what just turned him on. He did, we, we happen to know that he also made a living by tutoring kids in Gomorrah. I don't know what that means, you know. This means at a simple level, a more advanced level, but he wrote nothing in Gomorrah terms. Uh, given his family background and his skills, it's because you know, like from his father, he could read Arabic, so it's not surprising that he would be somebody putting over um, the classics of the uh, Diktuk stuff. Uh, and that's when I concentrate my remarks today. Uh, the Diktuk stuff that I just told you before that was written in Arabic into Hebrew, but it's not simply a question of translating the works of Ibn Janakh and Ibn Chayyuj, because they're kind of boring. Unless, I mean, no, there's only technical people who can plow through it all would understand it. Uh, his job was to make Dikduk, quote-unquote, easy, meaning to synthesize all the stuff that the pre, pre, predecessors said. And he has a couple of Chadushim on his own, no question about it. And to write it all in, 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 in Hebrew, which is the language that all the Jews can read, all the intellectual Jewish intellectuals can read, and, and put it over that way. In this role, he succeeded brilliantly, and the Radak became Mr. Dikduk in the sense that he's the guy that made it uh, the art scroll, so to speak, for Claudius Rome, okay? Which is not a Kleinikite. So he lived in the late 1100s, early 1200s, and he, in his works, I'm sure he taught it over and over again and finally put it into book form. He, in his works, wrote the books in Hebrew, and in a clear, simple Hebrew, which conveyed the basic dictics that had been worked out in Spain, but were written in Arabic books, books to Claw Yisrael. Um, and they were a hit from day one among those that are interested in this sort of thing.
Now, it's kind of interesting that because they're written clear and systematic, and they have a lot of milas in this particular regard, you know, they're well-written. So guess what? Christians could also learn from that. So I would say that the two dictated books of the uh, Radak became like the, the favorites for the Christians, including the missionaries, because how, how the heck is a Christian going to understand the, the Lushan Kurdish? You understand? Um, I mean, they had ways of doing it, but the Radak made it a lot easier for them also. So here's somebody that got to be a favorite among the Jews, as well as a favorite among the Christians, although, although the Radak was a from guy, and he lived in Provence at a time when there was a lot of um, turmoil going on. Uh, in the 1100s and 1200s, when his lifetime, you had a major war and a holocaust among the Gaim taking place in Provence. There was a team A versus team B. One side was the Catholic Church, the other side was the Albigensians, the Albigeois, who disbelieved in a lot of basic Catholic stuff. And the Catholic Church eventually uh, wiped him out, killed him. But we're talking about major wars and battles and things like this. Once in a while, the Jews were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That is true. Uh, you know, got killed. But usually the Jews, like, kind of stuck their noses out of it. That's a complicated subject I won't go into. But let's say he lived in Provence in a time of tremendous turmoil. And therefore, there was a turmoil of ideas. And uh, the Christians obviously have to base their uh, religion on the Old Testament. Uh, because they know the Jews don't believe in the New Testament. So, no, the Jews say the whole New Testament is made up from top to bottom. But the Old Testament is not. And they bring many riots, or they have attempted to, especially in the Middle Ages, from the Old Testament. The problem with the yeshiva guys is they don't know what to answer a missionary. Uh, they don't know Tanakh. They don't know Jack. And uh, therefore, the Radak, who made it his business to master Tanakh and that sort of thing, also made it his business to slug up all the Christological passes, passages throughout the Bible, especially in his commentary on Isaiah and on Psalms, on Tehillim and on uh, Yeshayahu, because you can already understand that the Christian religion is based on the idea, the virgin will conceive a child, and so on and so forth. And the Radak is the guy who's going to write the classic contrary arguments to this. And I would say all through his writings, in the Tanakh, which is mainly, he will also write on the whole Nevi'im, and on um, the whole Nevi'im, and on, uh, what I say, and on, oi, um, on Tehillim, and probably in some other things, not everything's been published that he wrote, but in terms of cultural history, that's the ones that hit Claudius Raw and hit the Christians, uh, and they wrote many things to slug his side up, so everybody knows, you know, the Radak is like very well known among the Goyim, Kimchi, they call him, and, uh, you know, if you're a missionary, you want to learn what the, what the Jewish retort is so you can give your own Catholic retort and so on and so forth. So it's interesting. The Radak, I don't know the whole publication history, but when his commentaries were published after the printing press came out, so, you know, the Catholic Church censored them like hell. Uh, you know, they, want, they don't want no anti-Christian stuff. Now, it got out anyway, and you can already read in the 1500s, what's his name? That Karite in Lithuania and Troki, uh, uh, Amuna, uh, uh, Isaac of Troki is quoting the Radak kind of arguments. Can I get the Christians? So the stuff was out there in manuscript form, but the Radak's works were always very heavily watched and censored by the Catholic Church, even though they also used all of his stuff. I'm talking about the commentaries on the Tanakh. 
But I'm going to call attention to what's in the Genozim catalog over here, which is the Sefer Shroshim. So he he wrote a book. And again, he was a mechanic. He taught people. He heard things that students didn't understand. He strove to make it clear. I mean, th- this is why he was successful. Because he had students and he dealt with the public and he didn't live in a in an ivory tower. And therefore his stuff is really good. So he put out um, something called the Sefer Ha Diktuk, um, which was to cover a, a whole lot of areas. But it wasn't published in the printing press when the printing press came out in one big bunch the way he did, but rather in two separate parts, the Sefer HaShroshim on the one hand, and the other one called the Sefer HaMichlo, uh, which are classics. I mean, you know, these are how people learned Hebrew long ago. Now, the stuff was so popular and so necessary that here in this auction you have today, you have one of the first Jewish books ever printed. I mean, in the 1400s. I don't know if that means anything to you, but the printing press was invented in the middle of the 1400s. Very few books, Sfarim, were published Jewish in the 1400s. Things picked up in the 1500s, but before that, very few. So if that's true, then whoever was in the book printing business, which is a capitalist enterprise, was only going to be interested in the type of book that it figured would sell. So uh, nobody put out a whole shots or anything like that. That was in the 1500s. So it's just very interesting. I have, like I mentioned the other day, interesting, my rusty, trusty David W. Amram's uh, book of makers of uh, uh, Jewish books in, in Renaissance Italy, which is an old gem. And he's got, um, you know, all the sorts of things that were published, the very few titles that were published in Spain itself before the Jews were kicked out. And interestingly... Uh, one of the places which became, for a short time, an important center of publishing Jewish books was Naples in Italy. Isn't that funny? There was a kingdom of Naples as a separate country. Uh, without going into all the politics, for a while the kings of Naples were interested in culture. They were also interested in partying, but I'm talking about the culture side. And there were Jews who came there. And especially if you publish a book, it brings revenue in the country because you can export it. And... Uh, Naples was in the late 1400s, let's put it this way, 1480, 1480s and 1490s, um, a center of book, Jewish, public, uh, Jewish book publishing. Now listen to this, this is really funny, because I was looking this morning and talking with Bital. Uh it seems to me that one of the books they figure is going to really sell great is the Sefer HaShoroshim, from Radak. So what does that mean? He wrote, as I said before, a big book, uh, which used to be written as one big book to explain the Gansa Lushen Kodesh, uh, one with the rules of the diktuk and one with what he calls Shirashim, which is basically a dictionary. He did what Menachem Ben Sruk did, but he did it better. So here I am. I have I have my uh, rusty, trusty edition from the 19th century reprint, and uh, I'm opening at random, and I see, you know, it goes by alphabetical. And so it says, Safa Samach Peyalv. What the heck is that? Oh, Gam Tevin Gam Mispo Ravi Manu. Well, we just had that in the Chumash. That they, you know, Lovan tells Eliezer, come and eat in my house. Gam Tevin Gam Mispo Yishim. We have straw and we have Mispo. By team Mispo Chamriem. Hushem Klal Lamichael Behemus. So Mispo is a general term for Michael Behemus, Kisorim. 
Mishiboshul, Mishardvarm, Lavarmi Temen. Okay, so in other words, Mispo means animal food. It doesn't mean anything specific, it means animal food. Now, uh, I'm sure somebody else might have a different interpretation. My edition is from the 1500s, reprinted, and it has Latin notes at the bottom, you know, to help the Goyim out uh, from uh, Elio Bucher. But uh, the original one is just on Hebrew. And, uh, you know, it just goes to show you, you know, how uh, it's a dictionary. But Derek Agav, take it from me, you, you could find this a very interesting dictionary. In fact, I'm surprised nobody's done this yet. And that is you could publish a, a Tanakh with the excerpts from this book at the bottom. And that would serve as a commentary itself because it's a little bit like the Sefer Oracle or whatever, which is not only translation, but sometimes they give you Shatim and Vartz in it. Uh, and uh, again, I'm just flipping it at, at random. Lula Os, you know. Um, so he gives you what Yonason translates Lula Os Tcheles, and he has a Pusuk. That's in Shmuel base. Okay? Lule means im lo. Have you not spoken, then it would be as if you didn't speak. He's talking about the fight between Yoav and Avner when they had that uh, ramble, uh, rumble. Uh, so anyway, it's it, it as I said before, it's a kind of, first of all, dictionary, and second of all, literally, you know, I don't want to use the word jastro, but you know what I mean? There's a, a dictionary where you can find the, the meaning of the words, and it also tells you, along the line, his interpretations of interesting psukim and, and episodes throughout the Tanakh. This book was a bestseller. Let me put it this way. Jews and Christians want this because Jews don't know the Tanakh either. So if you're living in the 1400s uh, and you want to publish something, there will always be Jewish scholars who say, you know, I'm going to come across a thing in Tanakh. How should I explain this? Look, let's be honest. You listening to this podcast right now, what happens if you open a Chumash or especially a Tanakh and you don't know the meaning of the word? So what you're going to do nowadays is you find the Get Art Scroll for the English translation. Where are you, Kaplan? And if you're living in Israel, you can find the equivalents of that in Ivrit. Okay? So your work, but long ago, there wasn't around. This is what you had. You see? So the person wants to actually know what the Tanakh's talking about beyond the simple levels of Ayam Rashem al Moshe. So um, one of the, um, the main tools you're going to use is the Sefer Shoshim Pradak. So guess what? Three guys, as far as I can see, the guy Gunson Hauser was an Ashkenazi, moved to, to uh, Naples, and he put out an edition of the Sefer Shoshim I think in 1489, 1490, and then, it's not clear to me, 100%, this one that's in the um, catalog, which is from 1491, apparently, uh, there was a guy, Katurzi, and there was uh, another guy, Sansino, who you uh, have heard his name, Um, and one of the two of them, or two two together, doesn't matter, um, published this, uh, beautiful, by the way, the print is really great, uh, edition of the Sefer Shrashem. And I think that each one put out his own. So think about that. In one year, uh, three guys published the same book in a time when Hebrew books were not being published. So that means each guy said, 
this is going to hop. This is going to hit the public and I'm going to sell out. Because I'll make a profit on this. Which goes to show you how popular the Saber Shoroshim was in the 15th century. Okay? Now, it was published a number of times since then. And in the 19th century, it's published in a nicer, perhaps, edition. I said with footnotes and things like that. Uh, the Sefer, the Michlal, I remember, was put out in funny editions. You know who, who translated and, and translated in English and put it in a, a nice edition? The father of that Mumser and a half. What's his name? Professor Chomsky. You know, the one who's always attacking Israel. Noam Chomsky. His father was a professor in America somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. And he put, I used to see in the Hebrew called his edition of the Sefer on Michal. Um, but the Shrosha and Michal, these are the two Amudi Atovech. Notice the Vilna Gon used these books. You get it? Th- these were what you used if you were interested in understanding Lush and Kodesh. Uh, because nobody could read the original stuff of Abimajanach and Abimchayuj and all the, uh, 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 the others. Until later centuries, modern Jewish scholars actually translated from the Arabic into Ivrit and maybe other languages, and then all of a sudden, you know, they could see it at, at, at Kli Rishon, so to speak. Now, if you're Sephardi and you can read Arabic, which there weren't many Sephardim who could read Arabic, there were some. The Sephardim come from Spain, could read Castilian and Ladino and things like this. I don't know if they could read Arabic, maybe Turkish, but, you know, maybe then you could read it. You know, in Yemen, that's a good place. You know, the Kapach types could read it, but Rove of Klai Yisrael could not. And so if you want to ever get anything as far as the Diktuk is concerned, now I'll say it again. Anything that comes from a doc in the area of Diktuk is very well organized. It's a pleasure to read. It's a user-friendly. And so uh, don't be surprised if it had a big, uh, you know, uh, kickoff. And it was reprinted, I don't know how many times. I see in this catalog only like the original or one of the three originals in Naples in 1491. I mean, that is really old. Uh, and it's supposed to be a specimen, like it says, a pretty specimen of the old Renaissance art. I mean, I'm looking at it. It's got these lions and tigers and all this other kind of stuff, which was fancy schmancy from the Renaissance artists, um, which you and I are familiar with from the regular shots, although they've done away with that sort of thing now. And, you know, if you have an older Gamora, you see the, the what was considered the artwork once upon a time. Uh, they have a couple of angels running around on the page which is, uh, you know, very Italian. Um, but it doesn't matter. The icker part is that you have over here, um, how should I put it, a, a specimen of a time. Today, people are not into diktuk, and of course, there have been many diktuk books and they've written books that are written post this. They all use him, and he's, as I said before, he's one of the Amudi Atabach of, uh, of Ivrit, and uh, the Radak himself has a separate career, which I don't want to go into right now, maybe later next week or something like that, if I feel like it, uh, is a separate career, as a commentary on the Tanakh. You get it? As uh, a commentary on the Tanakh. I, I just will share with you one very cute thing, and that is that uh, a number of years ago, they published, I have in front of me, from the Musar of Cook, from Moshe Kamalhar, whoever he is, uh, the Radak on Bracious. I don't think it's in the Art Scroll Chomish with the Nakudas. I don't think so, but I'm not going to get up and look. But I remember this. This is really funny. And this is just cute. Uh, Mamish, we just had this in Vayetze. Yaakov meets Ra- uh, Rachel and, you know, and he says to, and he says to Lovin, she's the one I want to marry. 
So in other words, he was into Rachel, not the Leah, as we know the story. That's a basic story. So the Radak, who's Mr. Bshat, okay? Now he's a from guy, but he's Mr. Bshat. So, uh, and Mr. Logic. I would not say philosophical. That's not quite the right word for the Radak, but Mr. Logical, okay? So he says over here, uh, this is kind of cute. V'yesh lish'o. If these people like Yaakov Inu were such big tzaddikim, they should only be interested in marrying L'shem Shamayim to have children. So what do you care of the chemistry, whether the girl's pretty or not? Or why should Rachel care whether Yaakov's hands or not? Why is it, in other words, that in the biblical narrative, we're always told the men were tall, dark, and handsome, and the women were all Yifas Tor. Why does the Torah tell you that? Okay. I mean, is there something wrong with those of us who are not Yifas Tower and are not tall, dark, and handsome? Sounds like, you know, something wrong with that. That's a very good question. You know, why does the Torah emphasize the physical? After all, from the firm perspective, the physical is not important. It's what's inside. Agreed? I think you, you would agree. From the firm perspective, you say, better, uh, 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 let's say, for example, a girl. Better a girl who's not the most attractive in the world, but is a big tzedekis versus somebody it's very attractive as a mershas. Okay? So he says, but very logical, again, and he's not saying to Ravel Hirsch, who says Yifas Torah means she had a beautiful, you know, Nisham or something like that. He's saying that Rachel Amenu, Rachel was a 10, you know? So, uh, so what's going on? She was a knockout. So why is he mentioned that? So he reads the story, he fell in love with Rachel because of her looks. That's not the only reason, but that was a big part of it. That's why he preferred over Leah. And by the way, he learns Leah was also good looking, just not as good looking as Rachel, if you look here. He said, you need, a, you need a physical chemistry to make a marriage work, and they should want to have children. And they want their kids to be good-looking. And anyway, life is more pleasant if you're married to somebody who's good-looking. I mean, is this true? If you think of every Godel Israel, for example, who usually got married when they were, you know, teenagers, thing like this, each one married, you know what I mean? The beauty queen? That's not what we say. We say, you know, Rebens Kanievsky, whatever. I mean, I don't know what she looked like, but I was married because of her, her Tzitkas, which she had. Okay? Uh, Ariel Levin, those kind of people, because of the Tzitkas, which they had. A Karis Abayas, that sort of thing. So it's just funny that, you know, you find these weird. Uh, Redox every once in a while, um, in there. There's another one about she liked shepherds or something. I can't, I, I, I couldn't find it right now. But anyhow, so if you're interested in uh, anything along these lines, in other words, you have a classic here of Jewish book publishing, because uh, again, I, I guess anybody's a player in this knows what an incunabula is, which which is uh, extremely valuable. Anything published before uh, the year 1500. As I said before, in the 1500s, economy changed. The Jews kicked out of Spain. By the way, Naples, which is the place where this was published, ceased 
to be a, a place where Jews could live because in 1503, I think, or 1504, um, the Spanish conquered Naples and ruled it for hundreds of years. So the, what we call the Kingdom of Naples, Southern Spain, was for the 1500s, the 1600s, and the 1700s um, ruled by Spain. So you had the Spanish Inquisition there. So Jews were not allowed to live there. So there's not going to be any um, book publishing. In that short, brilliant period before that, uh, there were. The Abarbanel, when he ran away from Spain, went to Naples for a while. Eventually, he had to get the heck out of there when the Spanish took over. So, you know, it must have seemed like the world's terrible. Like Hitler is expanding, the Spanish are going here and conquering there, which was true. So it's a, it's a complicated story. Um, and as I said before, all the dictic books that I know of, uh, from and not from, start with, base themselves off the Michlol and off of the uh, Sefer Shorashim. Those are the two classic works of Radak, who therefore hit a home run in this regard. Um, however, Dictuk is considered interesting by those that are interested in it, but not by the Hamunam. So, you know, many people are not familiar with or care even about the Sefer Dictuk. But if you're an intellectual out there and you're interested in what at the end of the day is actually very important because if you don't understand the Dictuk, how are you going to understand the Tanakh? But unfortunately, in the firm world, you know, you just need the Tanakh enough to, enough to say a vart, you know. Not so many people are my eye in so closely in the Tanakh. And if they are, it's usually in the stories, which is great. And not so much in the uh, Nevuas and things like that. Kind of things to talk about in the uh, Haftarah podcast. So Radak is one of the greats in this particular department. Anyway, so I've said this over again. The, uh, the uh, Gnazim, um, uh, what do you call it? Online auction is going to be this Sunday. And if you're interested, you go online and just Google Gnazim again with a funny spelling G E N A Z Y M, right? Not G N A Z I M, Gnazim, G E N A Z Y M. And you'll see the whole business yourself. And could be by this time next week, one of you is going to be owning the Savish Russian original, one of the three original editions. From Naples in 1491. Whoa, baby. By the way, the print here I'm looking at is first class. Uh, that's when Italian Renaissance uh, book making was a high art. Not today as it is a business, but it was a high art. Anyway, with that, I uh, bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.